Good evening. Ooh. You can uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, and we'll, uh, we'll be looking at Exodus 5 through 10, actually, um, not to like usurp the authority of the lead pastor, but that's just what we're doing tonight. So <laughs> Exodus chapters 5 through 10, I think one of the, the greatest philosophical and scientific questions that mankind can possibly have is that of origin, right? I think with uh, the passing of Stephen Hawking, that becomes very evident, a, a, a man that gave his life to the pursuit of figuring out the universe, the cosmos, where we come from, how it came into being. But I, I think more essential than that is, is a much more functional question, and it's that of authority, right? Not only who created all of this, but who, who is in control of all of this? Who has the right to say what is and what is not? Who has the right to tell me what I can and cannot do? And that's really the question that I think Exodus 5 through 10 focuses on here. As we unpack this, this question, we see some differing opinions here. But before we get to 5 through 10, I want to remind you very quickly what Robert taught us in chapters 1 through 4, and it's that God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of God's people, Israel, is mediated through the man Moses here in the book of Exodus. And Robert told us that Moses serves as a type or a, a foreshadow. I'm, there, I'm walking, and I think they're snickering at me. <laughs> Moses is a type or a foreshadow or a prefigure of the role, the, the mediating role that Jesus Christ will play between God's chosen people, the church, and God himself. And so, so that's the picture that we see coming forward from chapters 1 through 4 into chapter 5. And in fact, if, if you'll look right over at the last verse of chapter 4, we see that Israel actually is extremely excited about this. Chapter 4, verse 31 says, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So if we're reading this story for the first time, we're following this storyline, and we're all real excited that Israel has been reminded of the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the fathers, and, 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 and it's great, right? Israel's here in Egypt under oppression, and they're like, let's do this. But that's not at all what happens as we move into chapter 5. It's actually just a struggle of, of authority, right? So Moses and Aaron, they go in chapter 5 before Pharaoh, and they say, here's what the Lord said, let God's people go. And, Mo and, and Pharaoh says, no, that's actually not what's going to happen at all. And in fact, things are going to be much worse for you for you thinking that you could come and tell me what I will do with my own slave people. And so Moses and Aaron kind of regather. They are upset, and then they're encouraged again. And in chapter 6, we see that God reminds his people of who he is. Right? And then we get at the end of chapter 6 a genealogy, which is important in its own right. We're not going to talk about it. But then we see in chapter 7 through 10, and even into 11, which we're not going to talk about, the fact that God is not only going to be faithful and send out his people, but he's actually going to judge the one who thinks he has authority over God. 
And so this is, what, this, is, this is where we are, right? This is what's happening in the story. So we want to look at it, and, and what I want to do is I really want to consider really two main points and then give you a very unsatisfactory answer to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So the first thing we see here in uh, chapter 5 is here really in verses 1 through 3. It says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So here in this first point, we see that Pharaoh battles God for power and authority. And the most important question in the cosmos, in the universe, is asked, and that is, who is the Lord? Right? And in verse 2, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, which he's an idiot, right? He asks one of the most important questions known to man. And we see really two responses. The first is Moses' response of, thus says the Lord, right? And, and Robert reminded us of, of the burning bush experience where Moses meets with God and God reveals himself and he says, who, who am I? Who, who, who do I? Who am I to reveal you? And, and if I reveal you, who am I to even say you are? And God just says, I am. Right? And so Moses gets in front of Pharaoh, and he has this prophetic tone to him. Right? I think he's like a precursor to what we see in the prophets. He just comes up and he says, thus says the Lord. Right? There's, no, like, there's no precursor to it. There's nothing. It's just this is a man who has met with the Lord God, and he has realized that if everything you have claimed about yourself, if you are really the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that you are renewing your covenant with us, and you're going to be faithful to us and send us out, and we will receive the promises that you gave to them, then I will do whatever you tell me to do, and I will go wherever you tell me to go before whoever it is I need to go before. Thus says the Lord. That's the first answer. But we see a competing answer of, thus says Pharaoh, in verse 10. The thing that we have to kind of slow down and consider, though, when, when, when we see Pharaoh and, and his response, you know, we're, we're Bible readers, we understand the story, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament and all of the extra books that we have and we've studied and we have languages and professors and great Bible teachers, right? We'd be really quick just to point out the arrogance and the stupidity of, of Pharaoh, but I think really what Pharaoh is doing is he is exhibiting the characteristics of everyone that has ever been born into sin. I think that's where we need to pause and think about this story as it unfolds. Pharaoh is not just saying, thus says Pharaoh, right? That's not what Egypt believes. What they're saying is they're saying, Pharaoh's God. Right, Moses, you're going to come to me and says, thus says the Lord, I am the Lord. And everyone here that's familiar with their sinful tendencies, 
it actually kind of hits home maybe a little bit more than it should. Right? And this is the posture that goes through Exodus chapter 5 all the way really to Exodus 18. But not only there, into the rest of the Bible, at the cross, and into the world we live in today. Right? This, this battle of authority, this question of who is in control. So what we see here, what, what we see very quickly is the exodus, right? Exodus, the, the, the going out of Israel from Egypt, the actual departure, exodus, it's not just a good thing, right? It's a, it's a necessary thing. We're not just talking about God's people being delivered from oppression and slavery, though that is a very good thing. It's much more than just a physical deliverance out of a land, Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a deliverance first and foremost that Israel has grasped of, of spiritual deliverance. Right? Being freed from the yoke of self. Being given the ability to live and follow and pursue God and his commands. That's what the Exodus is, is showing us here. It's freedom to worship God. Not only physically, but spiritually. So here Pharaoh, uh, he kind of he, he stands as a case study of, of the, the danger and the peril of personal autonomy, right? The, the idea that, that we can somehow in ourselves be sovereign, right? That we somehow have control over things that, that Pharaoh actually, you know, he, he hears what God has to say, but Pharaoh knows what's up. Right? This is a man that doesn't need anything, and he's in control of everything. Look over at Proverbs chapter, th- chapter 30. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 10. So the writer of Proverbs says this, starting in, in, in verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Right, what, what is happening here is Pharaoh is, is contradicting outright the authority and the rule and the sovereign rule of God, right? He's grasping at something that's not his, right? He's declaring his sovereignty, but he's just grasping at the air. There's, there's nothing actually there that he is, he's getting. And yet, God's sovereignty has not been thwarted in the, in the slightest. In fact, God's sovereign will is unfolding exactly as God has designed it to unfold, Pharaoh is conducting himself in a manner that will actually bring glory to God and reveal and magnify the sovereignty of God all the more. So what Pharaoh thinks he's doing is actually exactly what God intends for him to do. Right? And I think we know that because the, the second thing really we see, the, the major thing that, that, that we see throughout chapters 5 and 10 is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We see it in, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 21. And then whenever the plagues are mentioned, it's just over and over again. And, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
So we see that uh, the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart really is just an example to an onlooking world. Right? All of those people that are looking at this great king in Egypt, God makes an example of him. So here is what the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is and is for. It's this. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a divine, mysterious initiative for displaying God's glory. That's extremely satisfying, isn't it? It's a divine mystery that is used for the purpose of putting the glory of God on display to an onlooking world. Right, in, in I mentioned chapter 4, verse 21, we see that God hardens Pharaoh for the purpose of him not following his commands. Right, that's, that's, the, that's the very first characteristic of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we get. He hardens him so he won't listen to what he has to say through his prophet Moses. This, this mediator between Israel and their God. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why would you harden him so he won't listen to you? Well, I think it's this. I think it's to reveal that God is the only sovereign ruler of the cosmos. And even in spite of others claiming that sovereignty is theirs. God wants Pharaoh to stand against him so he can show an onlooking world that no one can actually stand against me. I need you to do this so I can show that I'm in control not only of your land, but you. You may think that you're the sovereign ruler of the world, but you're mistaken. Right? It's the, it's the potter and the clay analogy that we see in Scripture, Right? The clay does not take the role of the potter, and sometimes the potter needs to establish his role to the clay. Mercy is God's alone, and judgment is God's alone. Were Pharaoh to say, yes, you can go, travel three days, worship, come back, that would not be Pharaoh's mercy. Were were Pharaoh to say, no, you're going to stay here, and in fact, it's going to be harder That's not your judgment. So here's a question. Who's responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Because it's active and it's passive throughout the verses, the chapters here. The answer is that God is is the cause of Pharaoh's hardness. And so is Pharaoh. But really the more immediate question I think for us this evening is, is what is your posture before God this evening? What is the posture of of your heart as God reveals himself and reveals his commands to you through his word and his revelation? Right? We don't want to remain so focused on figuring out something that's really rather mysterious in the Bible and miss the fact that what is happening is, is actually we need to be reading this inwardly focused. This is how Pharaoh views God, right? It's, 
awful Pharaoh, and this is how Moses, good job, Moses, but, but where are you? Right? Am, I, am I grasping at the sovereignty of God? Am I in control of my life? Whenever things come up or difficulties arise, is it by my power that I'll be delivered? Can I provide a loan for my family and their health? Right? As a single mother, can I do everything on my own because I'm a strong woman? The answer is no. We can do nothing apart from the sovereign will and power and grace and mercy of God. So what we see happening with the plagues, right? I think that's the central focus of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is these ten plagues. What we see happening in the, in the plagues is that this is, this is the the epitome of not being able to stand in opposition against God. What are the plagues except God's reminder to the world that no one stands against the sovereignty of God? No matter how intently and how powerfully they display their personal sovereignty, So for us, I think the, the plagues, it's really a call for us to relinquish ourselves to the control of God. Right? When we look at these plagues and this judgment against a people who stand in opposition to God, it should drive us to God and to His sovereignty and to His plan and will for our lives and to relinquish and abandon our self-control and our autonomy and any other thing that we could think that we are in control of. And I think that that's our responsibility, right? This is not a passive, let's just like sit and let God be sovereign and he'll do as he pleases. There, there is the sovereign, it, it, it's, it's that mystery of God's complete sovereignty and yet human responsibility that we see happening here. So Exodus 5 through 10 establishes the authority of God in the cosmos over all all powers, right? God is sovereign over everything and everyone. But it also reveals that God calls us to abandon ourselves and to serve Him so we can be set free. So here in the, in the third point we see that God establishes his sovereign reign. I am the Lord. Look in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to him. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of of, of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I have sworn to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So as we see this final point, we have really these, these two foundational pillars within Exodus 5 through 10. And those two pillars really serve to answer and and show who is in authority, right? And so we see that Pharaoh has his chance to, to exert his authority, and he tries, and he makes things difficult, right? He doesn't heed the instruction of God per God's plan. And yet the man doesn't stand down. Right? We, we, we go from 7 to 11 and we get the 10 plagues. Right? And then even into the book of Exodus, we, we get some, some worse things. But before then, God establishes very clearly and with certainty who is in control. And not only who's in control, but what type of ruler he is. And so we see that God establishes his sovereign reign. So the, the, the point here is that I am the Yahweh. I am the Lord. And the Hebrew term Yahweh, that really points to the relational covenant aspect of God, a God of relation to a people. I am the Lord. Right? And we see that he is the, he, he's the God of covenant, he's the God of Egypt, and he's the God of redemption. Right? What we don't necessarily see on the surface of the text is God is, is really revealing his sovereignty, but also he's revealing his omnipresence in his rule. Right? I'm a God that is limited by no time. I am here and I am here. I am in this age and I am in this age. Right? I think often we, we, for, we forget about that as we're reading through Scripture. We see God's plan unfolding and we see it unfolding how we would understand it to unfold, but God is functioning with the entire completed script. And he reveals that here to, 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 to Moses. Right? I am the God of covenant. I'm the, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of your, your forefathers. But I'm also the God of, of Egypt. I'm the God of right now. I'm the God that's going to deliver you from the oppression and the slavery of Pharaoh. But not only that, I'm the God of redemption. And not just the redemption that you're seeing here, but a redemption that is far off and that points forward. Right? When he says, I am the Lord, He's our Lord. 
Then you see this, uh, this word uh, now in chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. It's right now that God has decided to reveal himself as this God and to redeem a people to himself. But what we see is that this redemption is rooted somewhere else. Right? Obviously, we see the word redeemed and we're like all Christocentric all of a sudden, right? It's like you have to read the Old Testament like looking for Jesus. Like we go and we're like, oh, redeemed, that's Jesus, right? Well, it really actually is. And I don't know who talks like that, by the way. No one does that. Um, I do have a voice for how people sound in my head. If you say something dumb. My wife has heard that voice and a few others. So what we see is that the redemption of God, his, his redeeming plan, right, this God of past, present, and future, right, is not just isolated and stuck in this moment, right? Now he's revealing it, but what we see is that it's, it's, actually, it's actually founded and pointing towards and because of his redeeming work in his son Jesus Christ that he will redeem this people in this moment for himself. Wow. Right, that's, that's who this Lord God is. That's who the God of Israel is. The faithful God keeping covenant with his faithful people. And obviously we understand that this redemption is nowhere more clear than the redemption that we see of Christ Jesus on the cross given as sacrifice for the redemption and the freedom from the oppression and slavery of sin and death. Right? What we see is that Exodus is not just something that's good. It's something that is absolutely necessary. There must be a, a departure from slavery and oppression. And the, and the means to have the departure, the Exodus from oppression and slavery, is found in the Lord Yahweh. That's what he's telling them. That's the God they serve, and that's the God that we serve. So how do these things apply to us? How do these grand truths apply to us? Obviously, we, we can figure that out. None of us are, well, I'm not going to say that. We can figure it out. But I think it would be helpful to have another uh, another case study. So, so turn to Acts chapter 22. We'll see here another encounter with the Lord and an, and a, and an, a, an appropriate res- response. So how do we take these truths, this, this understanding of God's redeeming grace to his faithful people, his faithfulness, his commitment, and his relationship to them, to them, 
right? We don't just stay at the fact that that's, that's great information to have, and I'm so glad that I have a deeper understanding of Exodus 5 through 10, I hope. But it ought to go with us, and it ought to drive our relationship with the Lord. So look at Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 10. This is, this is the Apostle Paul reminding and telling the people of his conversion on the Damascus Road, his conversion from Saul to Paul, and what happened when he met the Lord. So starting in verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Here is a, is a proper response to meeting the Lord God in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's this. It's not who is the Lord. It's the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And it's a who are you, Lord? And then the Lord, as he reveals himself to Saul, Saul just naturally goes, what shall I do, Lord? You see, that's where we all ought to be if we claim that God is the Lord of our life, that we believe in His sovereignty and that He controls everything. Reform, 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 blah, blah, blah. But if when we meet and are confronted by the Lord God and we posture against Him, I'm afraid that that's the wrong call. And yes, we will struggle as long as we are in these sinful bodies. We will struggle with that being a disposition that we have. But if we stay there, then my friends, I think you don't know my Lord. Because if a man like the Apostle Paul, a murderer and persecutor of Jesus Christ himself, is encountered with the Lord and he is simply drawn to say, what shall I do. Ought that not to be what we say? And so as we continue through the book of Exodus, we will, we will see that God makes it very clear with, with, with the slaughtering of the firstborn sons. And we see that God does establish himself and that he does remain faithful to his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
every good thing that you give us, God. And, and, and one of those great good things, a blessing in our life is your word that we might gather together as the body of Christ around it and hear what it is that you are saying to us, Lord, that we might meet with you in this moment and hear the words that were spoken from you. God, may we never go to the Word as if it's a a way to offer something before you, but may we go to know you more fully and more deeply and know how it is we are to respond to you. God, I pray that if there is an unbeliever in this room this evening, God, that they would see the futility of the control of their own life. God, that they would relinquish themselves, that their their heart would be softened in this moment and that they would accept you as Lord and Savior, God, because it is only in you, only in your sovereign kingship that freedom is given. Only in you is the yoke light and the burden easy. God, may we rest in these truths and may we do what you have called us to do as believers. May we proclaim you. May we love you. And may we be a people of your grace and of your mercy because that is how we stand before you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen.